Hello, friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Walby. The podcast you're about to listen to is a very, very special one because it is the first maiden podcast of a brand new podcast channel that I am launching called Eternal Ethics. This is going to be its own separate channel, so you're going to need to subscribe to this own channel if you want to hear the rest of the series. And this is a podcast about the book of Pirkei Avos. If you're not familiar, Pirkei Avos is the Jewish take on ethics, on character, on philosophy, on all the other elements of life that are not included in what we call strictly halacha or law. This is a magnificent book. It is about uh, 1,800 years old, yet the lessons and the insights and the wisdom are absolutely timeless. That's why I'm calling it Eternal Ethics, not because it's only about ethics, which sounds kind of boring and blasé, but because traditionally it's been called Ethics of the Fathers. This is the wisdom of our antecedents, of our great predecessors coming all the way from Sinai, and therefore it has an eternal capacity. It's it's always, it, it doesn't fluctuate with the time. There's about a hundred of these little Mishnahs, little lessons called Mishnah, and we're going to go through them one by one. Each one is going to be its own podcast. Uh, therefore, some of them will be a little shorter, some will be a little longer. But the goal is to take this ancient book, of Pirkei Avos, of chapters or ethics of the fathers, go through it Mishnah by Mishnah and try to pull out the deep, profound, and frankly relevant insights that can help improve our lives. So again, this is going to be uh, the first episode I'm going to put on this channel. And if you want to listen to the rest of them, I'm going to put a link in the description for the new podcast channel, Eternal Ethics. Subscribe to it and enjoy. As always, please Email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All the best. Let's begin with Mishnah number one of chapter number one. I'll just read it quickly, and then we'll try to understand what the lesson is. Moshe, Kibel Torah, Misinai. Moshe received Torah from Sinai. Umasara li Yoshua, and he transmitted it to Joshua. V'yoshua lezikanim, and Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets transmitted it to the men of the great assembly. They said three things, be deliberate in judgment, and develop many disciples, many students, and make offense for the Torah. This is the first Mishnah of our book, and I think it's a very powerful introduction to the book as we are about to embark on a journey throughout Pirkei Avos, throughout the chapters of the Fathers. And I think what the Mishnah is coming to do is to answer the most important question that we ought to have. We're being presented here with a book that is almost 2,000 years old, and the claim is that this book is going to guide us how to become prophets, but also how to improve our lives, how to become better people, and how to maximize our stay here. And I would imagine, you know, the question could be asked, if we're going to look for self-help, if we're going to look for character development, maybe we should look to a newer offering, a book that maybe is contemporary, that understands our psyche, our, our, our uh, modern man, and maybe can have the collective wisdom of time. It has access to the best studies of human psychology and human character. 
maybe that's a better book for us to study. Why, why are we going to 2,000 years ago to find out how to become a better person? And I think if you look at this Mishnah and you break down the various elements of the Mishnah, it answers that question. So let's look at it piece by piece. The Mishnah really is broken down to two separate parts. It begins with Moshe and Sinai and the transmission of the Torah from one generation to another, from one era, from, from one epoch to another. And then it settles on the men of the Great Assembly, and it tells us what did they teach? What were their, their three maxims that they would teach? So why, why does our book begin with a preamble on the transmission of Torah? And this is the question almost all the commentaries ask. If you're going to have the line of transmission of the Torah, maybe you should put it in the first book of the Mishnah. The book of Brachos is the first book of the Mishnah. Welcome to the Mishnah. Welcome to the codified book of the laws of the oral Torah. Where does this come from? It comes from Moshe, from Sinai, to Joshua, to the elders, to the prophets, to the men of the assembly, all the way down to Rabbi Judah the Prince, who wrote it here. That would seem more appropriate. Why does the book of ethics, the book of philosophy, the book of character development, why is that the book that has this introduction? So one of the commentaries, it's, it's, it's an idea that's said by many of the commentaries, but one of the commentaries writes as follows. Perhaps you may think that each one of these sages, they came up with some new insight in human character and behavior on their own. They were innovators who said, well, let me think of three ideas to be my principles that are going to guide me in my life. Therefore." To, to negate and to dispel that notion, the Rabbi Judah the Prince begins this Mishnah. Here is where I'm going to give you the lineage of Torah from Sinai to tell you that just like the laws of Tzitzis and Sukkah and Shofar and Shabbos come from Sinai, so do the laws of Perke Avos, of character, also come from Sinai. And therefore, it's appropriate to tell us that these are not just random ideas that great people came up with, which may be right, may be wrong. Rather, these are absolute principles from God, and therefore, I think appropriately, when we look at it and say, okay, well, what should be the principles that guide our life? Well, if we try to develop ones on our own, or if we take someone, some human's ideas and say, well, these sound okay, they may be right, but they may be wrong. If we go to the book of Avos, we could say that these come from God, and therefore they're absolutely true, and we don't need to rely on chance. I think that's the simplest way to understand it. And of course, well, okay, where do I sign now? If, this, if there's a book that tells me what God, who created the world and created us and understands human psychology more than any other entity, if he's telling us what are the principles of, of, of character development and, 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 and what are the steps to achieve in human greatness, well, you have my intention now. That's the simplest understanding of the introduction of the Mishnah. Now, you'll notice another idea. What do we have here? Moshe has the Torah from Sinai, and he gives it to Joshua. What this is telling us is that Moshe, he has Torah. 
but he gives it. Joshua has Torah, he receives it, but he transmits it. The elders, they have Torah, but they receive it from Joshua and they transmit it. Torah is not something that we can harbor by ourselves. Torah has to be transmitted. Moreover, if you have a novel insight in Torah, you must write it down or you must tell a friend. Why? Because God is sending you a message. And the message is, here's an idea in Torah, here's an idea in truth that I want to give to you, but you cannot hold it yourself. And, and I think, you know, that this idea of taking Torah and passing it on is very valuable for us as we're about to start this book. We're hopefully going to depart on a path of accomplishing great things. It's important for us to realize we cannot abandon everyone else. We have to take them along with us. Now, you'll notice that we're told that Moshe gave, transmitted the Torah to Joshua. Now, Moshe, of course, taught the Torah to everyone, not just to Joshua. But there's a difference between teaching Torah and transmitting Torah. The greatest leader of the generation in Moshe or Joshua or the elders, they have the most res- important responsibility ever given to man to take a divine Torah that was given to us and only us are the ones who can pass it on to the next generation. And that is accomplished where someone has to spend time, significant time studying it under the tutelage of their great predecessors and thus creating this unbroken chain from Moshe, from God at Sinai, all the way down to present times. This is the greatest responsibility of man. Yes, of course, Moshe taught it to everyone. But what happens if there's one guy in the corner who's dozing off while Moshe's teaching? That does not necessarily imperil humanity. Because as long as there's Joshua, as long as there's the great leaders who are there, who are not going to miss anything, the Torah in its complete form will be passed on to the next generation. And that is the special role of these people in our Mishnah. Now, if you'll notice, there's a little bit of an inconsistency. If you read the words very critically, you'll see that Moshe received Torah and transmitted to Joshua. It doesn't say Moshe received Torah from God at Sinai and Joshua received Torah from Moshe. Alternatively, it doesn't say that God transmitted Torah to Moshe and Moshe transmitted Torah to Joshua. What it said is Moshe received and transmitted to Joshua. So what's this idea behind this inconsistency? So one of the commentaries, and it's again, this is a theme shared by many of the commentaries, they tell us that there was a difference between Moshe's receiving of Torah and the transmitting of Torah to Joshua. Moshe, after all, was the prophet who had prophecy ba'aspaklaria mi'ira. He had unhindered prophecy. There was nothing, it, it was direct communication from God. That is a different level of communication than anything a human could have with another human. Moshe received Torah from Sinai, he got it all. There was no nuance that wasn't transmitted perfectly. However, what happens then? What's the next step? The next step is Moshe transmitted it. And you have to rely on human capacity to make sure that's done properly. 
So when Moshe is transmitting Torah, he's doing everything he can to make sure that no mistakes arise. But you are relying on humanity. And you're going from Moshe, who was the greatest prophet, to Joshua, who was also a great prophet, but not quite in that level. And this is showing us, this is highlighting the major problem that we have in our history. Is that we're going from God to Moshe. That maybe could be done perfectly, but then Moshe to Joshua. Joshua is not as great as Moshe. And you know what? Joshua to the elders, there's another step down. And the elders to the prophets. And the prophets to the men of great assembly. And the men of great assembly to Rabbi Shimon. And to the Zugot. And to the Tanaim. And to the Amoraim. And to the Geonim. And to the Mirushonim. And to the Achronim. And to us. The Mishnah is beginning to open up the problem that we're going to face. The problem is, is that every subsequent generation is not as great as the preceding generation. Yet, we're told, we have to transmit Torah accurately. How is that possibly going to be done? How are we going to overcome the Achilles heel that we have? Is that every subsequent generation is less gifted spiritually than the preceding generation. We're going from Moshe to Joshua and down, and it's devolving further. Yet, we have to maintain Torah in its pristine form. How is that done? How is that accomplished? That's the continuation of the Mishnah. The men of the Great Assembly said three things. And if you'll notice, each one of these three themes highlight the fact that every subsequent generation is weaker spiritually than the preceding one. And therefore, the likelihood of mistakes and errors is very present. And therefore, if you're aware that the fact that you may make a mistake, you have to make sure that you create the system and the systems to make sure that mistakes don't happen. If you're aware of the problem, you recognize the obstacle, you have a chance to make sure that you don't make a blunder. So we're told the first part of the Mishnah is every subsequent generation is devolving, yet we have to transmit Torah. How is that done? Come along to the men of the Great Assembly and they tell us exactly how that is done. Who were these people? The men of the Great Assembly were a collection of 120 scholars formed by Ezra in the 4th century before the Common Era at a time of great peril for the Jewish nation. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews are sent in chains to Babylon. Once they get to Babylon, they establish life there. Israel is a barren wasteland. And after 70 years, they have to face Haman and his genocidal ambitions. And Ezra, he gathers a group of 40,000 of his co-religionists, and they start heading back to Israel. And they're at the tail end of prophecy. The last prophets, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, these are the members of the men of the Great Assembly. And they realize that the Jewish nation is going to change in ways hitherto unseen. First of all, you're going to have a split nation. Half the nation, really the majority of the nations mean Babylon. Some Jews are going to be in Israel. The basic institutions of normative Jewish life are either going to disappear or are going to be mere shells of their former glory for the rest of history. 
the second temple, there are no longer going to be any legitimate Jewish kings. The office of the high priest is going to become corrupted. The temple itself is no longer going to be the epicenter of Jewish life. It's going to be lacking in even the most important vessels, like the Ark of the Covenant is not present in the Second Temple era. And additionally, the bulwark to ensure that things don't go awry, prophecy, is waning. And the prophecy, the prophets themselves are realizing they're the last ones. And to fend off these problems, Ezra convened the men of the Great Assembly, and they convened to ensure the survival of the Jewish nation, and they had remarkable foresight to set up the people in a way that they could thrive under these challenging circumstances. Again, the theme of the Mishnah, the people are devolving generation after generation, we're going further away from Sinai, further away from Moshe, and our spiritual acuity is diminishing, and we have to work around that. So what do they do? They start with canonizing scripture. They seal the Tanakh. They institute formalized prayer. They're coordinating the Jewish calendar. They establish educational systems in the land of Israel. And they assure that the transmission of the Torah and the continuity of the Jewish people are going to continue despite these challenges. And therefore, it's the most appropriate for these people to teach us how this is done. And they tell us three lessons. First of all, be deliberate in judgment. It's interesting. The very first lesson of Pirkei Avos is one that applies ostensibly to a judge. I don't see any judges in the room. I'm certainly not a judge. Why would the first lesson of Pirkei Avos be sim- seemingly addressed to the judicial aspect contingency of our, of our people? But I think if you think about it, what does a judge do? A judge has made, made a, a judgment call. He has to make a decision. The most basic human quality is the fact that we can make choices. We have free will. And we have to judge the options. We have to weigh the pros and cons of each, of each choice. Here we're told what are the foundational principles, how to think, and how to reach the proper, correct outcome. Be deliberate in judgment. Think slowly, not quickly. When you think about something and you weigh the options, if you do it quickly, it's very likely you'll miss very important nuances that will help you and that will guide you to reach the proper conclusion. Moreover, the human fallibility is is ever-present. And therefore, there's so many aspects that are necessary and the the more insight we have, the more wisdom we have, the more we realize how much we don't know. And if we make quick decisions, we're actually not allowing the full ability, the full power of our decision-making capacity to be unleashed. There was a uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist by the name of Daniel Kahneman who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And part of the book is about the two systems of how we make decisions and how we analyze. There's system one, which is the fast thinking, knee-jerk reaction. And then there's system two, the slow and the careful and the nuanced analysis of an issue. 
my grandfather used to say, that the way you develop deep ideas is by taking something and thinking about it for months, maybe even years, and allowing yourself to deepen your understanding of the subject matter and to dwell upon it and to allow yourself to be exposed to other things that seem to be unrelated. But once you're, you're thinking about it internally, other things will pop up in the course of your life that will make you realize new angles and new insights and new facets of the issue that you're working on. And thus, when you think slowly about an issue, you're likely to reach the correct conclusion. Again, awareness of the problem, human fallibility, and the development of the generations and how to work around it. Be deliberate in judgment. What's the next aspect of the Mishnah? You should develop many disciples. So who does, who, who does that benefit? So there's two opinions. And you look at the sources and they, they go either one of two ways. Either one source tells us, quoting the Talmud, you should establish many students because you never know which one of them is going to be the one that's going to excel. You should have students when you're young, have students when you're old, because who knows which one is going to be the one who's going to have, who's going to be your legacy. What that means simply is that, again, there's capacity for error. Who is going to be the next link in the chain? Make sure you spread it around and you find the right one. That's the simplest understanding. But there's a Talmud in the book of Tainus on page 7a that tells us that this is really about the teacher. And the Talmud tells us the Torah is compared to a tree. You want to make a bonfire. You have trees. You have wood. But you always start with the small twigs. And only the small twigs light the bigger wood and eventually light the log. What it means is, says the Talmud, the Torah is compared to, 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 to a tree, to a tree of life. And just like a, tr- a tree, if you want to inspire it, when you want to enliven it, you have to have the smaller twigs there. So too, a great Torah scholar, he is not fully unleashed unless there's smaller scholars all around him. And then it quotes the great Rabbi Hanina, who said, Har I learned a lot from my teachers, yoter, and from my colleagues, from my peers, even more, umitalmidai, your temikulam, and from my students, I learned even more than my peers. What this means is if you want to teach, you have to have a much firmer grasp of the subject material than if you want to study. And perhaps what it's telling us, make a lot of students. What that means is that will improve your odds of not making an error. Because the more opinions that you're exposed to, the multiplicity of students ensures that the blunder that's just awaiting to happen perhaps can be avoided. And finally, asu siyag la Torah. Make a fence around the Torah. There's many examples of a rabbinic fence. The most famous one, perhaps, is the idea of muksa. Muksa means anything that cannot be used for a permitted usage on Shabbos is not allowed to be moved on Shabbos. So, for example, you have a pen. There's nothing wrong with a pen. In an idealized world, unless you use it to write, right? One of the 39 prohibitions on Shabbos is to write two letters. The device used to write is a pen. So can you handle a pen? Can you spin a pen? Can you play with a pen? So from a Torah-Idic perspective, sure, no problem. Come along the rabbis and they make a fence around the Torah. 
They say not only should you avoid writing, but avoid handling the pen. Because if you handle the pen, you may come to write. Which, again, seems to go very much in line with this theme of the Mishnah. You may make a mistake and make an ordinance, make a system to avoid making mistakes. Now, of course, there's a caveat with that. And we saw this when we learned the Parsha. We have to make sure that we don't add on to the Torah itself. We don't say that handling a pen on Shabbos is prohibited by Torah. It's We have to recognize it's rabbinic. However, the rabbis are told in the Torah itself, Asu mishmeret lemishmarti, make a guard for my guard. The Almighty is telling us, he's instructing the Sanhedrin, if you feel that there's a need to make a fence around the Torah, do so. I always give the example. If you see a small child with a paperclip and he's trying to puncture the outlet, which and he has no aware, awareness of the danger, well, what do you do? You get one of those little plastic things, little plastic inserts, and you push it in to just make a fence around the danger. If, if, pro, if transgressing the mitzvah is a danger, stop them one step beforehand so that it doesn't happen. Now, again, we see the same continuum. You may make a mistake, but you could avoid it. And I think if you look at the Mishnah now holistically, let, let's zoom out. We start off with the Mishnah, two parts that seem to be unrelated. On one hand, you have a line of transmission. On the other hand, you have the lessons of the men of the Great Assembly of how to judge. But I think, like we said, there's one continuous idea that's present. There's a systemic devolvement of the generations. Our spiritual capacity is diminished generation after generation. There's a great story with my namesake, one of the greatest uh, sages uh, to ever live in America, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, happens to be also my great uncle. But there was a story that he was he was traveling on an airplane with his son. And uh, there was someone sitting next to him, and his son was walking over to him and saying, can I give you some water? Let me help you. He was taking such good care of his father. And the person next to him, he says, I, I, I can't help but notice how how much honor and respect your son gives you. And my kids, they don't look, they give me a second look. What What's the meaning behind it? So Rabbi Yaakov tells him, he says, it's very simple. You believe the man comes from an ape. So every generation back is closer to the ape. And therefore, the subsequent generation is more human. So why should the kid give you more, more respect? We believe that every generation previous is closer to Sinai. It's of greater spiritual capacity. And therefore, the son must accord honor to the father. Okay, so what's the bottom line of the Mishnah? Humanity is spiritually devolving as we're materially progressing. And we see this in the beginning of the Mishnah. Moshe, the Joshua, there's a downgrade. And we're told that despite these challenges, the transmission of the Torah from one generation to, the, uh, to another was pulled off. Despite the fallibility of man, the most important task ever assigned to mankind was pulled off. How did they do that? How did they navigate and perhaps neutralize their propensity for errors? We'll tell three answers. Number one, they acknowledged that they needed to be continuously rigorous in their thinking and analyzing and probing into every issue. And therefore, they were deliberate in judgment. And they recognized that they had to do that or else they would make a mistake. 
Number two, they had to assemble as many opinions to ensure that no stone is left unturned. It can be analyzed from every vantage point, many students, and despite their due diligence, they made ordinances to protect and prevent from catastrophes. I think this model is a very powerful model that could be applied to really any endeavor. I think we think about financially, right? You want to build a model, financial model, realize that you can make a mistake. Right? Think about it, your move and analyze and explain it and explain why it may not work, right? Think about it on a very deep level. Find sounding boards to, to, to bounce your ideas off of because you might miss something. Someone else might be able to guide you towards that. And even so, make sure you have your options to get out and to avoid catastrophe. Everything that you do notwithstanding, you'll still make a mistake. And you, you realize that. And the, these three systems will ensure that despite the development of mankind, we could still progress when we are aware that we take steps to prevent it. So I think one of the takeaways of the Mishnah, first of all, it's humility. It's very hu- humbling to say that I don't know if I'm doing everything correctly and I'm doing – because, because I'm aware of my propensity for making a blunder, I'm going to take steps to avoid that. But additionally, what's this whole book about? It's about the imperative of self-perfection. If we realize that we're in a long-term decline spiritually, that makes us – and that's why it's the first Mishnah. The first Mishnah tells us, you need this book. If you don't have this book, who knows what can happen to you? This inevitable decline. Additionally, the question we started off with originally, who are these elders? What do they know? Well, if we're talking about perfecting our soul, these people are the best ones to dispense this wisdom. Right? They're called, it's called the book of our fathers. It's looking backwards. The famous verse tells us, Shema b'ni Musar avicha. Listen to the musar, listen to the castigation, to the reprimandation of your father. He is one step closer. But of course, these are the fathers of our nation. These are the, our elders. And they had a much clearer view of the spiritual individual in their perfection that we could ever have. And thus, indeed, the, the earlier back we go, the better and more pristine and lucid and more wisdom that we can have in our pursuit. If we do nothing, we will err, we will devolve. However, if we recognize our shortcomings and we plan accordingly, we can and we will triumph. Welcome to Perky Avos.